welcome to Justice Rising, a podcast where we explore how we can work towards liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. This week, I sit down with Dr. Patrick Reyes to discuss how decentering and disrupting white supremacy culture allows communities of color to find their purpose. Dr. Patrick Reyes is the author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Gap, empowering communities of color to find meaning and thrive, as well as the award-winning book, Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood. A Chicano educator, administrator, and institutional strategist, Patrick is the Senior Director of Learning Design at the Forum of Theological Exploration. Thanks for hopping on, Patrick. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am coming to you from Santa Fe, New Mexico. I work for the Forum for Theological Exploration. I'm the Senior Director of Learning Design, which means I get to work with our historic fellowship program, Supporting Scholars of Color, since um, we've been doing that since 1968. And that's been a core part of this why I came here. I've been here for six years to really do that work. And since then, my role has expanded to online learning, working with our various networks, campus ministers, a youth ministry, and our kind of young adults who are discerning to call the ministry, especially in this world that is so broken and trying to find trying to find their way to how do, how do we make it better? How do we um, address all the, the deep injustices and problems and climate change and all the things, all, all their dreams about changing. It's a true joy to do this, uh, to do this work and to help them find their way, find their purpose. Well, you got your work cut out for you because working through all of this, there's a lot to tackle. When you were starting to do this work, what was your pivotal justice moment, if you will, that really shaped the way that you approach your current work? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I grew up in um, Salinas, California, which is a, and my the rest of my family, the rest of the races are in Bakersfield, California. And if you look on, like the brain concentration index, you know, it's a it's an education desert. People leave when they get education. I think about you know Brandeis University has this childhood opportunity index. Both of them are in the bottom ten for opportunity for young people to uh, come up at, in Salinas where I grew up. It was tons of gang violence, mainly folks who are working the fields. It's an agricultural center. Again, not a lot of opportunity for folks to dream and imagine what they might be, what they want to do when they grow up. And I think growing up in that context and in, in my household, it was just really about, okay, if I'm going to take this serious in, in the future and live into the love that my grandma gave me, that the Christian brothers who you know, they take a vow of poverty at the time. They're doing, I don't know what they're doing now, but 90 bucks a month or something like that, where they were trying to help young men. I think their, their phrase is where young men become boys, boys of promise become young men of, I don't know, something. It's a great mission statement. Uh, and to me, I was trying to think about how do I live into these values? And for me, it was always education and, and really seeing how do we expand opportunities? So that way, when I went to college and then eventually seminary and in my own doctoral programs, I was in these conversations with folks who just seemed to always have doors open for them. Like worlds were just opening for them to dream and imagine. I said, that wasn't my context growing up. And so how do we expand that opportunity for people who have just as much promise, who can dream big dreams, 
but maybe don't have access to the resources, the people, the mentors, the educational opportunities. And how, how do we expand that? How do we expand that access? You know, the to uh, to my people um, in the ways that my grandma did. And I just, I, for me, that's just an act of love for the world. Wow, that's quite incredible. Would you say that all of these moments is this what shaped your book, The Purpose Gap? Yeah, The Purpose Gap for me was a follow up to my first book, Nobody Cries When We Die, which was really like a coming of age spiritual autobiography, like my attempt at trying to make sense of the events in my life, mostly traumatic, that formed me, shaped me. So, surviving gang violence, surviving domestic violence. And really trying to say these are the ways and people who intervened in my life. And, you know, being from a community that has less than a percent of a percent have a graduate degree in any field, you know, to say to come from that, what does it mean for me to actually be able to achieve this? And and what are my responsibilities for those back home and for the next generations who follow to do that? And the purpose gap was me taking I was I was out speaking um, on this topic and um, about meaning and purpose and how people need to follow this. And it was very self-centered. I mean, it was really about how do I find my own meaning and purpose. And I get this phone call from my dad who said, my cousin had passed away. Mm -hmm. And I think about my cousin who I reflected in that first book, who was going to get locked up. And and, and this is how the purpose gap opens. And and it really is um, this moment where I said in Nobody Cries, you know, he was kind of celebrating going back. And I was talking about how my grandma, you know, called him to remind him of family and community. And here I am trying to help uh, first-generation college students. I was speaking to a first group of first-generation college students telling these stories. And my dad's reminding me that my cousin who um, came to me, uh, came to live in that house at the same time I did. And my grandma reminded me, hey, Mijo, we love you, but this bed that you're staying in is not yours. It also belongs to your cousin. And he didn't have a bed that night because wow. I was sleeping in it. And so for me, the purpose gap was really trying to take inventory that I had access to a privilege and a lot of opportunity to do that. And there is no reason why I should be here having this conversation with you and my cousin shouldn't. It was, you know, it's really around survivor's guilt. And so me trying to unpack the purpose gap to think through what does that actually mean to close that? So my cousin could dream big dreams and could be the one having the conversation with you. And, and you know, one of the things I always say that one of the models that came came to me is the like hero's journey myth that, you know, very famous Joseph Campbell, like you get, it's almost like a mountaintop. You're going up this mountain and you see mentor, you get this call first, you get a call to adventure. Then you get mentors and resources and guides all the way up to the top of the mountain where you have your big struggles, graduation. It's your, it's the moment that matters um, in your life and you achieve it. And this story always works out. And then you return home and you tell the story and you pass on the wisdom to the next generation. And so I see this mountaintop. And as I'm doing this research, I, I, I saw in the data, well, for a lot of us, for a lot of communities, especially communities of color, and especially for my Chicano Mexican American community, that mountaintop was actually a gap. You just flip that mountain upside down. What if you never receive a call? What if you never get resources, mentors, teachers? What if that bottom is actually hitting rock bottom because you've been on a path where you know, you're more likely to go to prison than you are to go to college, you know, and you hit rock bottom. So you're basically trying to climb back up just to make status quo. So that way your kids don't have the same um, issues, traumas that you did. And, and that's just like maintaining, that's just surviving. And so for me, the purpose gap was really about that doesn't work. 
you know, you can have one person cross the gap, you can jump over it, you can build bridges, you can come up with all kinds of cool little analogies. But what if we really started to take serious that it was about communities finding purpose? It was about bringing our wisdom and the traditions and love of our ancestors into the present. And so that way we can imagine and dream for future descendants. And that takes communal work. That's no longer just pat on a hero's journey. It really is about bringing in my cousin and my ancestors and my community to say, how do we change the conditions for all people in our community to thrive? That's really interesting because there's going back to something you said earlier about this image that we have in our society of this mountain climbing, two thoughts popped in my head. One is that's very individualistic and I would even say very white, white centered thinking, white European thinking. And it's also very privileged. And I I noticed when I was like, was reading your book, you mentioned suffering, but what came to mind was this Catholic and Christian notion of redemptive suffering. I jotted that word down because I was thinking about how that's also a very privileged notion. You write about how how society marginalized people. When we're on these kind of like individual quest. There's a, the collective and the individualistic. With marginalized communities, it's more of a communal approach to problem solving and, and finding purpose. What do you think about that idea? You're right on. I got, I got uh, kind of two parts. One is, let me just address the suffering thing. I say this in Nobody Cries, the first book, was really when I was trying to assess my own trauma, really trying to abuse I experienced as a kid, as a child, from a person who was not my dad, who was in our home um, that my mom invited in, and saying that no child uh, desire suffering. There is no redemption in suffering. I don't like my theology doesn't get, get there. I, I will argue with theologians um, to the end of days that I don't think that's what we're actually called to. And I think if that is part of the theology and the tradition in which I find myself, then it's probably not my tradition. You know, it's also like maybe we need to create better theologies than that. Um, uh, because when I think about the suffering of my people, of children, of folks who don't have access to the resources or the abilities to find safety and security, that is not something that anyone desires. And I think the kind of redemptive lens that we try to put on that is a reaction to an opportunity for us to, to really rethink what does it mean to heal from that, that it's not trying to rationalize what happened. You need healing. We don't need a rational thinking. We don't need to theologize that. We, I have wounds. Wounds need to be addressed and scars will be left. So I, I think about that question and suffering that I've tried to build into the purpose gap that these gaps, whether it's the education gap, the housing gap, the wealth gap, um, I talk about cultural commutes, the cultural commutes that especially people of color and immigrants in this country have to deal with to, to translate, to move between these worlds. Those gaps should not exist. There's no redemption in overcoming them. What we really need to do is exactly what you're saying, is redefine what we mean as a society to create great education systems, great housing systems, where everyone can find life abundant. And for me, that takes a radical reimagination, not a slight reform, but a radical reimagination that to me is deeply biblical for me as a follower of Jesus. I mean, I think, you know, as a as someone who's raised Roman Catholic and and still professes, I mean, I think that there's something really specific about we are called to reorganize society to, you know, our own Christian communities, despite what society is putting us, putting us on. And it is totally individualistic out there. And I think if we could reimagine this, I mean, I hear, 
an activity for your listeners that I just do that for me is a way of humbling myself, which is I introduce myself not as Patrick Reyes, but I am nestled between five generations of Carmelitas. There's a Carmelita that I can find that's five generations back. My grandmother's name was Carmelita. My daughter's name is Carmelita. I'm sure there will be someone that carries on her spirit in five generations. And the responsibility that comes with holding that love with a Carmelita who never knew who I was, but was setting me up for the love and success. And for me to imagine in five generations, that Carmelita probably won't know who I am, um, but that I am seeding the ground for a radical reimagination where she has what she needs to thrive, to dream, and to build a sustainable earth, which we know with everything that's happening in this pla- on this planet, to dream for five generations future is a big deal to set the, to try to think about how do we create conditions for that Carmelite to five generations from now to thrive is actually a real radical way of imagining that to me is not unlike what we see in scripture to radically reimagine the world when God intervenes, when the world becomes more whole, when the nations come together in Micah, when Jesus is talking about the end and the new kingdom come. I mean, I just think that there is something really radical and special about being able to imagine a communal thing that isn't just about this present moment, but is about those generations before and the generations to come. That's so compelling because I think about what you just said about that naming your identity in terms of like Carmelita uh, or people in our generational pathway. Do you think that this re- renaming or reimagining is a way to kind of heal some of those ancestral wounds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, at least as a Chicano, someone who is existing, if you go back five generations, you know, we were on soil that it was our still the same soil, <laughs> you know, like my family's been here for a minute and uh, political situations has changed. So all this stuff that's arguing at the border, we are borderlands people. We have been existing in this space and to uh, heal that moment that we have been ostracized, marginalized, pushed to the side to say that our borderlands aren't actually the border of anything. They are the center of our world. To re-radically recenter our communities is an act of existential claim that like, hey, as a Chicano, that I have the right to exist, not just in the future, but I have the right to exist in the past and the present. And I think for me, at least in the purpose gap, I am really trying to tease that out around how do I reconnect with those roots when they have been so colonized that when I recognize that the majority of my education came from Western um, Christian you know, tradition, you know, Catholic Christian brothers upbringing, I went to a Mennonite school. I went to a large state school to finish out my undergrad. I went to Methodist schools for both my master's and my PhDs. And like, I just think about, okay, so if this is my formation, my grandma was lost in all that education. She didn't come up once. You know, my history, my people didn't come up once. So how do I, as a scholar, as a theologian, as an administrator, how do I redirect resources, time, energy to recapturing, reimagining those traditions, those practices, those wisdoms to do exactly what you said? These are deep historical wounds that we're feeling. And I think everyone is invested in this. I don't think this is just a Chicano thing. I think this is a white thing. You know, my I have my mom's side, you know, they go back to Macedonia. Like there's a there's a side here that they're equally wounded in their own lack of knowledge of their own kind of sense of self, of what they bring that's unique, that if these things could come together, 
I mean, I think my family's pretty cool. You know, like they should see this as an act of love of something really amazing and abundant. And if we could do that together and bring our traditions, um, you know, I, I think about you and I having this conversation. If it's not a conversation between you and I, but really you and I rejoicing with our ancestors because we brought them together to meet for the first time and them coming together to rejoice in us creating something new that sets up our future generations in a new way. That to me is, that's really, really exciting work. That's not just about, you know, dressing the wounds that I have. It's saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to do my work for my people and I need to imagine new worlds. So this doesn't continue to happen. Going back to your book, The Purpose Gap, you have this image throughout your book of a diagram that has purpose on one side, purpose, opportunity, and gap in the middle. First, how do you think we can find our own purpose or discern that path? And what to you is this pathway towards this opportunity that you address in your book? Yeah, one of the things I, I love to offer to people and, and they can go to my website, patrickbreyes.com and they have the, I have the exercise on here to answer this question. And it's a it's a try to reimagine this rather than mountaintop, but as a circle. If you were to draw, you know, I'm, I'm using regenerative science here, actually draw a donut on a piece of paper and in your donut that you know, divide it up into four quadrants, people, places, purposes and practices, and then write down all the things that matter to you all the people, all the purposes, all the practices. I love a great cup of coffee. I mean, that's a core practice of mine. I need to have my great cup of coffee every morning. I think about prayer being in there. Um, And then, you know, just take an inventory of what matters to you. And then what you notice as you draw this is that you also have these boundary lines on the outside of your donut. Everything that's on the outside is what the world demands of you, what it's telling you to do. And I see so often people not knowing how to manage that boundary. Because they have just written in their side their donut everything that matters, the people, the places, the purposes, the practices. And then you know you get that one email from your boss who says you need to do X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden he's the most important person in your thing, or she's the most important person in your life. And you know you had to get to this thing for a family member. Like we know when we don't protect these boundaries, this is what happens. The flip side, too, is that you have to manage, you know, I I, I draw, I went to BU, so I'm a Thurman person. I love Howard Thurman. I love all of his writings. And that center circle, I always say, don't write anything down in there. That's you. I mean, at the very least, you know, most you would write your name, but this is who you are at your core. This is the sound of the genuine. Uh, And this, this core, this center is that piece of you that extends out to all these places, you know, your love, your energy, your excitement equally you have to be able to protect that boundary for your core self, for those core practices, because we all know that even in the best case, I love my brother. I'll just pick on my brother here who's up near you in Bellingham. I love my brother to death. He is one of those people who will always be in the center of my donut. I just absolutely love him. And that center, that boundary line, he also, since we've lived together for so we lived together all the way through, you know, getting up to grad school, he knows all my bust buttons to push. So if I don't protect that boundary between him, he can absolutely slide into that center, that sound of the genuine and live rent free in my head for like a week. You know, like maintaining that centerness to me and just maintaining that that donut for me is really about exactly what you said. How do you reimagine purpose? Will you pay attention to the people, the places, the practices and the purposes that you have in your life? 
and protect that and say, this is what I'm only here for one time. I'm between five generations of Carmelitas. That comes with the responsibility to protect these, this ring that I'm trying to take care of. Then what pushes us out of the ring? Is that the gap that is formed or is that gap more systemic? Well, I think for, it depends on, it's a both and. I think for uh, people of color, especially, there's a systemic piece that's constantly bearing down on us that we don't control. You know, the race, the systemic racism that exists in our education systems and our legal systems, um, the challenges that we face on a daily basis, um, you know, prejudice, that stuff is constantly bearing down on that. There's also just the kind of, I think that gap between, you said it, I mean, my image is purpose and opportunity. And that's to say that everyone has a purpose and that there are opportunities that are just beyond either someone's own imagination, the own horizon, the situation, the example I gave going back to the Carmelita, she's like big into being an astronaut and the, and the purpose, you know, in the purpose gap, I do the statistical analysis. What would it take for her as a Latina to become an astronaut that goes into space? And if you look at the statistical probability of her even to get into the space program, let alone get on a shuttle, it's next to zero because of the body that she's in. And that's not to say that she can't do a million other things. It's just to say that if we were really serious about reimagining these conditions, she wouldn't have to jump through so many hoops to get through there. We would be thinking about a more imaginative, more expansive way of saying, hey, you know what? We know that the developments they're making in these space programs benefit society on a whole bunch of different levels. What if we reimagine STEM programs so that way young girls, young Latinas can imagine themselves as astronauts and if we can only send five people up in space because that's all we can afford or that's all we're going to do as a site, that's totally cool. But guess what? She, you have a huge network of people now who are educated, trained, ready to go to do those developments that actually benefit the rest of society. And I just think that sort of imagining where we're constantly having to go back and forth between this is the world that we live in and this is the world that we want to inhabit is that tension that so many, especially people of color, BIPOC folks in this country have to navigate where we're constantly saying to our children, yes, we want you to dream those big dreams and we want you to know the realities that this world offers and not to put added pressure on this generation, but added pressure that we got to change it so that way future generations don't have to deal with this same dichotomy. Do you think there's a possibility for us to live in a gapless society, a society that's more equitable and more generative and more communal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope so. I mean, that's what I'm working for. I mean, I, I don't think it'll be realized in my lifetime. And, um, you know, especially as I think about the young adults and the, the folks that I serve at FTE and their imagination, um, there's such a, there's such a gap just in what kids today can imagine and what they imagine for each other. And I think, um, closing that imagination gap, uh, closing the the opportunity gap, all these various gaps, they need to really, they need to take folks both taking inventory of where they sit and being okay with that. I mean, I closed the purpose gap with this story around going to one of my best friends growing up, good Catholic family. I absolutely love and adore, I still love and adore their family. And having one of the ho- most hurtful things said to me, which they did not mean to be hurtful, um, around going to their house, having dinner. And I'm, you know, I'm from a big Latino family. They're 
not Latino, they're white family. And in the Latino family, if someone puts food in front of you, you, you eat it. It doesn't matter what it is or how much. And they just kept feeding me because in their tradition, you know, you, you keep feeding people as an act of hospitality. So I show up one day and the little girl calls me and says, you know, hey, Patrick, you know, we named our pig. We named it Patrick because it eats like you, smells like you, and acts like you. And it's like, dude, this is, and I just come from basketball practice with her older brother. So I was like, of course I smell. And of course I eat a lot because you're putting all this in front of me. But you have no idea how offensive this is. And and what, when we kept having the conversation, she was also saying, oh, from the same side of town, because I lived on the other side of town. And so, the, you know, from the pig fields. And so I just, I, I think about this and it's not just, it's not just closing the opportunity gap for me, but I also think about that little girl. I think about my friend's little sister who that early, she understands the gap. She understood enough that I lived in this side of town she understood that I didn't have as much access. She also understood I smelled because I came from basketball practice. But I, I think about this, that what if she doesn't get a new imagination around, maybe it's not cool that brown folks live on the other side of town near the agriculture and that I'm saying this these sorts of things. It's it's more important, not just that I get correct on this, but to see it as my generational responsibility when she becomes an adult to say, we're going to close this. There's no, there's no longer going to be this distance between Patrick, Patrick's family and my own. We're going to close this and we're going to be a community together, which means they might have to rethink some of their privilege and, and power. And that, that does take a radical reimagination for those in privilege and power to reimagine how they operate in the world. It's not just about me coming up. It's about folks really trying to hold on to their resources and maintain their place in society, reimagining those things. And that's, again, I say this in the purpose gap, that starts young too. I mean, it starts at that conversation. There should have been some reimagination in that moment for all of us. Like Pat's a member of this family. He belongs to us. Um, we don't name our, I mean, maybe even before I got there, don't name your pig after, you know, friends, (laughs) kid, you know, like usual stuff. What a story, what an image, something similar to that, not in that context exactly happened to me when I was living in the Czech Republic. They have a tradition like you, they'll keep repouring your glass until you, like not until you say stop, because it's rude to say stop, but they'll just keep refilling your glass. So it doesn't matter what it is, tea, alcohol, whatever. And I grew, I didn't grow up in a Latino family. I grew up in an Italian family, which, which has some similarities, but you eat what's in front of you or you drink what's in front of you. And a uh, long story short, I learned the hard way of like pacing myself with, with drinking with checks because it, but it was like, I was painted. It painted their image of me. Like, geez, wow. She's this American girl is kind of a little wild. And it wasn't that I was wild. I was just trying to be polite and navigate that cultural thing. But I think it's like what you said about, um, how we see each other, the lens that we see each other, the story that we tell and how we have to reframe our, or, or reimagine these stories. And I think it's also really pivotal that in terms of, of racism, question that I ask myself when I do justice work is what am I willing to sacrifice and what pe- privilege and power am I willing to give up to make space and make room around the table. So I think that's a really uh, compelling piece that you highlight here. I want to ask you one last question. Is there a call to action that you have for our listeners or really for anybody? Yeah. I mean, part of what I put in the purpose gap is really, I hope that people start to imagine, reimagine their own sense of meaning and purpose less about 
what they're doing for themselves or finding their own dreams. It's really answering this question around how do I become a good ancestor? Like really imagine yourself as a good ancestor. When folks look back and they think about what you made space for in the community, were you a good ancestor? Were you a good ancestor to this planet? Were you a good ancestor to the people? Were you a good ancestor to the the um, non-human? You know, these are this is a reorientation that puts the multi-generational impetus on purpose that reimagines it. Again, this goes back to, you know, kind of the Chicano and me, the Chicano futurism that, you know, having the the right to exist, not just in the future, but in the past and the present, and to say that I have a responsibility in this middle space as someone who is maintaining that I want to carry forward the that, that my sole purpose is to carry forward the love and wisdom of generations that came before me. So that way future generations know that they are loved and valued. And to me, that is, um, that takes that answering that question seriously. You know, what am I, what am I willing to do to become a good ancestor? I think for so many, that's not on their radar. They're thinking about the now. And I, I totally get, especially in these days with COVID-19 and systemic injustice that's happening in this country, the triple pandemic, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about the environment as well, environmental d- destruction, to think of yourself as a good ancestor is really hard when you're in fight or flight or survival mode. And the more that we can get folks to imagine, whether you're in power or privilege or you're in a marginalized group, to think about how do I become a good ancestor, do the best I can to close these gaps, to close the purpose gap for future generations. That to me is living in to that promise of being a good ancestor. Well, I think this ancestral piece is really pivotal because like you said, I think we sit in primarily in the future, but humans don't necessarily, we don't necessarily live in a linear time space. And if we're, we're going to the ancestral timeline, we're going past, present, future. That's right. In the future, you and I will be dead. <laughs> we will be ancestors whether we like it or not. So I want to be a good one. Thank you so much. How can folks follow your work, support your work, support your mission? Yeah, you can find this and all the work that I do on my website at patrickbreyes.com or thepurposegap.com. You can also find out the work that I do at um, the Forum for Theological Exploration. So if you're interested in ministry or supporting young adults who are pursuing ministry or scholars of color who are writing this stuff to protect and make sure that our communities are not erased or eradicated, you know, you can find all that information at ftleaders.org. I'm always, if you want some motivation, I'm all I do is post love on my Instagram. You can always find me at uh, Patrick B. Reyes on, on Insta. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a work of Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center in Seattle, Washington. IPJC is sponsored by 24 religious congregations. We act for justice in the church and in our world. If you would like to see more work like this, go to ipjc.org and consider supporting our mission. Make sure to hit that subscribe button for our podcast and to hear more conversations like this wherever you listen. Tune in next time.